You're listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. On this week's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast, we are going to be playing the second panel discussion at the Business Capital and Exit Strategy Summit. I was the moderator on this panel with special guest Armelo Rodriguez, the director at Lafayette Square, Connor Riley, principal of Global Capital Markets, Marti Tarigiani, who's a senior vice president of Pacific Western Bank. The topic of this panel was post-pandemic capital structuring, where will the money come from? The information on this panel is amazing, but I do warn people, the audio quality is not the best. The first part of it, we did not have when the panelists introduced themselves, and then the body of it, we did get some of the audio feed, but to be honest, the Q&A part, we had to take it from a camera in the audience. Now, like I said, the audio quality is not the best, but the content is amazing. Also, in the show notes will be the contact information for all these panelists. So if you want to reach out to them, please see the show notes. All right. And now with that, let's begin this week's episode of the Silicon Valley podcast. Enjoy. Welcome to the Silicon Valley podcast with your host, Sean Flynn, who interviews famous entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and leaders in tech. Learn their secrets and see tomorrow's world today. Can everybody hear me okay? I'm yes. not sure if this, okay. We're a, we're a mid-market investment bank. We typically look at transactions between 10 and 250 million bucks. So typically it's uh, later in the game when somebody's looking to raise a significant growth capital or exit the business entirely. We're industry agnostic and have a broad breadth of experience, but it's generally later stage. Yeah, and I would say similar to Connor, you know, we are relevant later stage. So at Lafayette Square, in our credit business, we do direct lending to middle market EBITDA north of five million is kind of where we like to play. And a lot of our use of proceeds will be towards M&A, growth capital, things of that nature. Okay, Armel, let's start questions with yourself. What's the difference for someone when they take a loan from a private lender like yourself versus from a bank? Yeah, thanks, Sean. So I would like want to start by level setting in terms of what a private credit fund is, because I think it's something that's really started to emerge more and take off since 2008 during the last great financial crisis. You know, with regulation and kind of the continued cons- consolidation of banks. Um, non-bank lenders such as private credit funds have really started to emerge and be a big player, especially within the middle market. And just like any other fund, private credit fund raises money from investors, LPs, and you know our job is to go ahead and make a make a return uh, for our investors. And we do that by investing in businesses uh, via debt financing, right? And in terms of some of the big differences, I would say some of the key ones that I could think of are uh, from an underwriting perspective, you know, flexibility, and as well as approach with us, just as an example, you know, when we look at a business, we have the ability to go from a leverage standpoint up to six times, six times leverage, whereas at a bank, generally speaking, you're looking at more, more like three times. When you're uh, saying leverage, what's that leveraged against? Yeah, leverage uh, to EBITDA. So good question. Thank you. So debt to EBITDA. And so, you know, because we're not a bank, uh, we don't have the same regulatory, I guess, standards, if you will, that banks will have. So that's one. And there, there's a few others that I can think of. For instance, we, won't, we wouldn't require a personal guarantee. We aren't heavily looking at the collateral as, as banks may, may be doing. 
you know, we're really looking at the cash flow and enterprise value of the business. Not all credit funds are the same, but that's how we, we like to operate. There, there's other credit funds out there that are maybe your more mezzanine funds or um, other uh, real estate focused funds. But for us, you know, that's how we approach things. And then Mark, question for you, background in venture debt. Can you tell us about when does venture debt come in to the fundraising process? Sure. So, you know, to piggyback a little bit on Armello, um, as he said, private debt fund is a fund that's raised from investors who are looking for a return. We're a bank and we're out there lending out the deposits that people put into uh, our bank. So there's a little bit different fiduciary that we have there. We do work with private lenders that are in our venture debt space as well. And they can typically do some things that are a little bit earlier, maybe a little bit riskier than the bank would want to do. You know, venture debt is it's a very timely topic to be talking about it because up until a couple months ago, we were like just sort of sometimes invited to the party. You know, it's like, oh, well, it's kind of nice. Yeah, well, we should think about venture debt. Yeah, okay, that's kind of a nice to have. But as things have changed and as the leverage uh, has moved from the founder towards the investor, venture debt is looked at totally differently. We're now kind of the popular kid at the party uh, because people are starting to look at venture debt as a way of extending runway. And as the, the market's been changing and investors are talking to their portfolio companies, you know, cash is king. And how long, how much cash do we have and how long is that going to keep us in business? So if you're raising capital with the idea that we're going to get 18 to 24 months out of this equity round, we can put venture debt on top of that, which typically is somewhere between 25 to 40% of the equity that's been raised. And then now, hey, instead of 24 months, maybe we can get to 30 months, maybe we can get to 36 months, and we can have a little bit more time to get to that milestone, which is going to give us the valuation that we want when we go out for the next round whether that to be a C, a D, or whatever letter of the alphabet. And Connor, we haven't heard from you yet. Say, say a company maybe borrowed some money during the pandemic, other than some of the options that were kind of mentioned to move forward, what are other options for possible post-pandemic restructuring? Well, I, I mean, I think it's a really interesting time in the credit markets as interest rates heat up. I think LPs are looking at reallocating. They're kind of selling off their, their equity positions, locking in those gains, and then deploying it into uh, debt structures, whether that's credit funds or corporate facilities. I don't know. Is this on? Can you guys hear me? What about now? Whoa. All right. So yeah. So anyway, what I was saying was the LPs or the investors in a lot of these credit funds are deploying more and more capital into credit facilities and away from equities. They're selling off their equities, locking in their their gains and uh, and redeploying that capital into into credit funds. What it means is that there's a lot more credit vehicles available for entrepreneurs. I think that credit has got maybe a little bit of a bad rap because obviously people are nervous about putting debt on their company. But the reality is that non-dilutive capital or capital that doesn't sit on the cap table is, uh, is a great resource for people. And uh, I, I really think that there's a plethora of funds and focuses out there that provide all kinds of different creative debt structures. And it's a good time to be looking at those options. Piggyback on that as well. You know, it's with the times that we're in, the dreaded R word comes around a lot more, more often now. So there, there is that thought banks being a little bit more tight um, in terms of how they deploy their capital. And so to, to your point, Connor, I think 
credit funds are definitely a, uh, a, a good alternative to, to look at and at your disposal if you're an entrepreneur. Okay. Then with that, Connor, what does debt restructuring process, what does that actually look like? If you're looking at restructuring debt? Yeah. So, okay, let's talk about what that is. So that means you have a, a note or you have a loan and you're not happy with the interest rate or the terms of that, or maybe you're, you're looking for additional runway, maybe the business advanced or changed. So all debt restructuring really means is swapping out one debt facility for another. And in a way, we do have rising interest rates, which means there's more investors entering the credit markets with different facilities. So it's a good time to shop around. So if you do have a debt facility or you're looking for one, and maybe the only avenue you have is the SBA, great, explore that. But there's a lot of stuff out there and debt restructuring is available to anyone. And it just means swapping out one piece of debt with the other. If anyone wants to add anything, please go ahead. If not, I got a question. For I mean, I, I would, you know, add our perspective on that and it's a little bit different. And, you know, when we provide a, a credit facility to a company that's uh, raising capital, typically when they raise that next round of capital, we're going to redo that debt facility again, right? Yep. So in a sense, that's restructuring uh, the debt as well, triggered by that next equity raise. Yep. And to uh, add to that, there are specific debt funds out there that are focused on turnaround situations where if it's a company that is struggling and lo- is looking to restructure their debt, existing debt could be uh, an interesting option as well. So there's all sorts of funds out there for that. And for our audience, remember, at the end, we are going to have Q&A from the audience. So please write down your questions on anything that you think might even, you know, even if it's a little off topic, I'd like to stump these guys. So. <laughs> Armello, question for you. What should someone be looking for or thinking about when they're looking for that lender? Yeah, I think a great question. I mean, to me, I think, you know, relationship is key. The ability for your lender to not only get the deal done, but to grow with you and your company and scale with you. I think, you know, all of that is very important and that it's not just transactional in nature, but they have a real solid understanding of your business and can be with you not just now, but 12, 18 months from now. So to me, relationship is key. And obviously, you know, the ability to get things done. When you look at the private credit world, I think one consideration to have if you're looking there outside of banks is their ability to deploy capital. How much money do they have in their fund? Have they demonstrated success in the past? How strong is their credit team? Um, so those are all, I think, things to consider if you're looking at that route versus bank lending. I don't really have anything to say, but I'm happy to say something. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, I, think, I think that one of the things to remember is that business is so fluid. And like Armello pointed out, you really want to have an open flow of communication with your lender, whether it's looking at making an acquisition or, or acquiring something or restructuring or just sharing a developing dynamic in your industry. Your lender really needs to be your partner and be someone that you can turn to and provide more than the mandated quarterly reports and really sit down and understand the business because ultimately they are a stakeholder, even if they don't sit on the cap table and they're, uh, they're an ally in the success and growth of the business. Yeah. And then to add to that banking side of things, it relationship is, is paramount as well. In the past few years when things were rosy and everything was up and to the right, maybe the relationship didn't have as much value because, hey, everything's good. What do I need from me? But as things are changing and as things are going to get a little bit tighter, to have a relationship with your banker is key to your business. And there's a lot of different banks out there and, and different banks have different strengths. I mean, we're a great 
option for companies that are venture bound or venture back. That's what we focus on. You know, if you're a, a concrete company and you're dealing with government contracts, then, you know, maybe that's a different bank that you should be talking to. So, you know, to have some intention as you're out there looking at the bank that's going to be best for your business, but also who is that banker? And am I going to have a relationship with that, with that banker? Good banking is, is a lot more than just how easy is it to open up an account? You know, as a bit of advice, as, as everybody's out there working, building their businesses, those are important relationships to have. I think they become even more important as things tighten up and uh, as uh, we go through this uh, winter that we are experiencing here. And Yeah, I, I would just quickly add, I mean, your banker is your advocate, right? Within the bank, if you want to be able to get things done, uh, someone has, has to be in there internally fighting for you because they're the ones telling your story. So be transparent as possible. And even if it's a challenging time, if you're not meeting a covenant, it's going to come out eventually. And it's better to have that story told um, so that your banker can advocate and fight for you versus it come up as a surprise when your financials are due. So you mentioned something right there when you're not meeting a covenant. Can you talk about that a little bit just in case that, that's not known for people here? Yeah. So when you enter a loan agreement, there's certain covenants that uh, you as a borrower will abide why abide to with the bank or whoever your lender is, whether it be covenants around profitability or debt service coverage, things of that nature. And so, you know, the bank or your lender will collect your financial statements at some regular interval, interval whether it be quarterly or annually, um, to test those covenants. And so as they do that, you know, if there's a violation of those covenants, Technically, then there's a you've, you're are in violation of your loan agreement. Now, that being said, I think no bank is or no real lender is out there to call the loan and take over the business. I don't think anyone's in, in the business to do that. But you can think of that as kind of a come back to the table moment so that you can kind of figure out what's best and what makes sense moving forward. That'd yeah. And in essence, they're triggering points that show that there's something going on in the business that we need to talk about. Okay, then with that, say someone were to come to you for a loan or assist in, in raising growth capital, and if you'd like to answer maybe first by saying they would come to me for this, what type of financial due diligence would you ask or would you perform on them before working with them? I know it's a long question, but Connor? So I think this is really where potential borrowers or potential parties to a capital transaction can really make the difference between an easy process and a difficult process. The due diligence requires all of your corporate documents, articles, yada, 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 your financials, past, present, your, your cap table, who is the major shareholders in the company, and then uh, any and all material contracts that might impact the business, litigation, any anything that might be creeping around there needs to be disclosed to your capital source. And it helps if you're organized. It helps if you have a template to build out a data room. Data room is something that gets thrown around. People are intimidated by it. You shouldn't just use Box, use Dropbox, use anything that's that can be password protected. But I would I would say that you you want to over disclose so that people get a true sense of the business. If you just have three years of financials and, uh, and a couple PowerPoints and a sales deck, that's not really gonna give anybody enough, enough context to, to potentially make a lending decision or investment decision. So my thought would, you wanna be able to present and prepare to the extent that there is nothing else that anybody would ask for. 
Yeah. And in, in our business, it's very similar as far as the financial information that, that we're gathering. I think one of the things in, in our business, since we're tending to lend to companies that aren't making money, that are burning money, is we're looking at you know, that, that burn multiple a lot, meaning how much how many dollars does it take to create a new dollar of revenue? You know, part of our relationships as well are with those VCs, those investors. And we know that they're going to do a much deeper dive into the technology and into the team and into the market than we ever would do. So having that relationship with the investor and the trust that, hey, we're in on this and we're probably in on the next round too, is a big part of our due diligence as well, is understanding what the investor thesis is in there besides what uh, all the financial information is telling us. And I'll just quickly add on our end, I mean, audited financials for us are you know, what we would look for. And in a lot of cases, and very common amongst the middle market, quality of earnings, especially irrespective of M&A transactions, um, are, are going to be you know, ask for as well. To me, that's particularly important in terms of those transactions. You can think of it akin to if you're selling your home, you do a home inspection, right? Um, maybe you do that proactively and it builds confidence for the buyer so that they have some confidence in what they're buying. So that would be another way to look at that. And then Mark, what's the current state of capital raising right now? That's, a, uh, that's an interesting question. I can speak from you know what I've been seeing and hearing out there. I've Things are getting tighter. I said it earlier. I think the biggest news is that leverage has changed. You know, for the last few years, founders have had it really good. I mean, they've been getting multiple term sheets. They've been getting to have, you know, the valuations that are, are making everybody smile. And that's changed. The, the leverage has shifted towards the investors. And a lot of it comes down to that remaining month's liquidity. How much burn do you have left? And if you're in a position where you got six months less or less of burn left, you're going to be in a real tough place to go out and raise new equity. Probably going to get a down round. It might be an inside round. And, and that can be tough for, for everybody involved. There's still a lot of capital being raised. There's still a lot of dry powder that's out there. But what I've been hearing VCs say is they're just taking a little bit of a step back and taking a little bit of a breath. And whereas they might have been deploying a fund in five years, maybe they're saying, well, we're going to deploy this over seven years now. We're going to slow down the pace a little bit and we're going to see how things happen. So companies are still getting funded. They're still going to be getting funded. But I think, you know, the leverage has shifted out there in the, uh, in the equity markets. Yeah. I would say that there's still a lot of competition for good deals, probably more so than a year ago. So I think one of the interesting things that's happening is that for some companies that hit certain benchmarks that are sort of agreed upon to be attractive to different funds, there's a lot of competition still. And for companies that might not fit into those buckets, there's kind of a dearth of deals being done. And so I think that as LPs instruct their funds to be a little more conservative and stick to a, a real solid and refined investment thesis, I think you're going to start seeing entrepreneurs need to explore multiple alternative funding sources and build a more complicated capital stack. Certainly, uh, investors are going back to some of the fundamentals before. I mean, over the last few years, it's been growth, growth, growth. Now, uh, it's a little bit more is, is there a path to profitability? Can we see some period of time in the future where we're going to actually, you know, have even to talk about 
But I think the fundamentals of the business are becoming a little bit more important maybe than they were previously when it was how much gas can we pour on the fire to get the biggest fire that we can. Well, with that though, I mean, for the last, I'm not sure, year or two years, kept hearing about all this dry powder, all these private equity groups, all this money on the sideline. Why do you think so much money sat on the sideline there for so long or wasn't there and just the well, rumors weren't I, I true? Think, I think it's a combination of two things. So one, when people hear about dry powder, what, what really it means is that the fund sizes are getting bigger. Over the last 10 years, the amount of capital that funds need to have is just shot up. So that means that the deal sizes need to be bigger because you got to deploy all that capital. And so that means you're not going to be looking for smaller deals to have multiple deployments. You're going to look for larger deals where you can kind of, you know, get the work done and get the funds placed. And so I think that one of the reasons why there's so much dry powder is you raise a massive fund, then go into a recession and suddenly the deal profiles don't look that good and you can't put as much capital to work. So you're going to just sit it out until those deals come back around and then you can write the checks that you need to. Good answer. Stump the... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> went silent on the on the platform. Yeah, I, I would just add to that too, probably a function of what, what you're maybe what contributed to that, just you know, the low interest rate environment we were in, right? And so LPs looked at credit funds and thought that was an attractive opportunity for them and started placing more more of their capital there. And to your point, that's kind of how that unfolded. When we're in uncertain times, is it an idea, a good idea, possibly to look globally for for investors? And if so, how would currency risk play a part in, in your thought process? Connor, you nodded your head, so you get to go first. Okay. Well, so I think that the investor base has certainly become more and more global. And I think one of the benefits of working with investors in other markets is they may have seen inflation before, and they may understand how to work through inflation, particularly if you look at countries like Latin America, places in India, all, all over the world. There's been um, sort of inflationary periods where investors have been able to deploy capital and make a profit. So I think that in terms of that insight and understanding, it's really good in terms of currency risk and how that factors out. I mean, currency risk has always been uh, an issue, particularly if you're a U.S.-based investor investing overseas. But I think that there's plenty of global players that are doing cross-border debt lending, particularly around heavy equipment, around minerals, oil and gas is a big one. There's a lot of money out there for international cross-border transactions. And, you know, I think that you need to have a business that requires that kind of capital source for you to really tick those boxes. But if you happen to be in that area of business, going cross-border is a great way to go, particularly with the inflation expertise. I, I certainly know that VCs are looking globally for their deals. And we're seeing, uh, a lot of companies that are based in Europe or Latin America who have been uh, funded by U.S. VCs, and now that they're going to bring their operations to the United States, and that's actually four or five companies that we're talking to right now who fall into that bucket, right? And it's at least with the VCs that we're working with, they're saying, we're going to invest in you, even though your development team's in Spain, but we want you to come to the States. We want you to set up shop there. And really, your go-to-market's going to be done from here. So kind of a flip side of what you asked there, Sean. And as a reminder, you know, commercial banks have teams dedicated to stuff like this in terms of managing um, FX and, and currency risks. So to the extent that you have a relationship with a commercial bank, I would advise reaching out to them. Okay, and we're going to open it up to the audience in just one more question. So 
people want to take notes of what they want to ask, just hold on one second. If you get Tim with the microphone and that ready, that'd be fantastic. Or Brian with the microphone ready, that'd be fantastic. So quick question for the, the panel. When someone comes to you looking to raise money, what's the difference between when the money is going to be used to grow internally versus the money going to be used to maybe acquire another company, an acquisition? How is that conversation different? You know, there are two very different things, right? Um, internal could be a new product line, new, you know, something obviously internal, external could be an acquisition. So um, for, from a lender's perspective, you know, a lot of it will come back to kind of similar to how a PE firm will look at it in terms of um, IRR, right? Like what's going to be the benefit for the borrower either way? It's almost like the build versus buy kind of strategy if you're going to do something internally versus buy externally. But for us, you know, as a lender, it'll come back to the fundamentals, I feel like, uh, where you're still going to look at EBITDA of the company, what's going to be the projected EBITDA, um, whether it's internal or if you're bringing on a new target acquisition, what will be the end result, right? And so we'll have to approach it both ways in that same manner. Connor, I would like you to add, but just for everyone out there, remember our last panel, if you had questions about EBITDA, please ask Barad and Ben who are in the audience that will be here throughout the day. So, so bother them on that one. Okay, Connor, please continue. Yeah. I mean, I think that sticking to the fundamentals is good. The, the big thing to realize for potential borrowers or for business owners is what transaction they're looking at. And so when people are talking about, oh, I want to grow my business, they're talking to someone about extending some line of capital to fund that growth. And then they realize that it, their growth is really going to come through an acquisition. You've kind of not gotten off to the right start because you've confused the type of transaction that you're involved in. So realize, I think, that from, from an institutional perspective, an acquisition is an acquisition. They've, they're done every day. You're looking at the company on sort of a standalone basis and trying to decide whether or not the capital required to acquire that company is going to generate a return and whether you're doing something internal then you're looking at, I mean, like you said, it, it, a lot of it at the end of the day comes back to the free cash that you have so you can service the debt. And I think that it's just the trick is to know what kind of transaction you're looking for before you approach a bank or institution seeking funds. Yeah, and add on that, uh, our venture debt probably after runway extension acquisition is probably you know one of the most popular reasons that people use it. And in the tech world, there's a lot of those you know, what they call aqua hires, right? Where you go after a company really because they got two or three engineers that you want to grab and you want to get onto your team, right? You know, I agree with the fundamentals that the panelists have discussed as well. And that's, again, an important time to have that relationship with the banker and say, this is something that we're thinking about doing. We're thinking about drawing down the debt to do this. What's your take on it, you know? And ultimately, the fundamentals. Are you going to be able to afford the debt service or is that new acquisition going to bog you down where, you know, you're in a worse place than you were when you, when you picked up the company? All right. And with that, let's open up the uh, questions from the audience. We have a front row, Nick. Nick, could you wait till we get the microphone to you? Uh, Nick Larson, CD Central. Great panel, by the way. Thank you, guys. Venture debt is uh, extending the runway. It, does that mean it's a, a down round? If so, how do you calculate the evaluation? Well, it doesn't necessarily mean it's a down route. It might, it might help you avoid having to do a down route, right? Because if you're getting to a certain point, and let's say there's a milestone out there on the horizon, and if we get this contract with this particular company, you know, that's going to pump 
a million dollars of ARR in our company and suddenly we're going to have this other valuation. But hey, things have slowed down. It's taken a little bit too long. So, well, now we can draw down on that debt, still pay everybody, still pay our bills and have that little bit of time to close it. So, you know, that's really kind of the, the idea of the debt being able to help you avoid having to do a down round because it gives you that extra time to reach whatever milestone that you're looking for. I, I had a follow-up question as well. So uh, I'm curious about when is the appropriate time for uh, a company to, to, to come to, to Pacific West? Uh, if they're an early stage you know, company that's looking to raise venture capital in their future, then for sure. You know, our model is really built for companies that want to go on that venture journey. You know, and as far as what's the best time to get venture debt, uh, the best time to get venture debt is while or right after you've raised your equity, right? Kind of that point where you don't need it. That's the best time to go get it. All right. Next question, Ron, and then to the back. Uh, I would like to uh, ask two questions. Uh, one is about underwriting guidelines, given that turmoil in the equity market have underwriting guidelines. And then the second one is about overall cost of debt with interest uh, rates going up, our risk premium. So, can you repeat the first part of your question? I'm sorry. Underwriting. 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 Uh, underwriting. Yeah, I know for us, we're a little bit unique. We're a startup. We were formed about a year and a half ago. Our underwriting guidelines have stayed the same. We also don't have a legacy portfolio kind of weighing us down, if you will. From that sense, I think it's solid. I can't speak for banks or other banks. I, I, I think there's a sense that things could start to tighten amongst amongst banks, um, but I wouldn't want to you know speak for anyone yeah. I, to I that point. Just you know, springboarding there with some of the larger banks that I've dealt with, which are sort of like large nationals. Most of them I've come across in workout or turnaround situations, and now we're starting to see the underwriting guidelines change. And there's there's plenty of deals that have been passed around these banks like a bad penny where they just go from workout group to, you know, they're on fledgling legs or back in the workout group, then they go on to liquidation. And one of the other things that's really kind of, I think, impacting is that the Article 9 sale of assets outside of bankruptcy has gotten a lot of, um, a, a lot of uh, scrutiny. And so now you're, you're forcing banks that have a, a company that's in default to either exercise Article 9 to go ahead and liquidate the, the assets outside of bankruptcy or to push the company to go and, and file. And, uh, and so I think you know, no one wants to be the bad guy. It's no one's intention to do that. And, uh, and no one wants to carry the risk of, of, a, of an Article 9 sale outside of bankruptcy. So a lot of these banks have had uh, a really long road with some of these companies that have been in turnaround or in default for an extended period of time. And I think that's, that's finally getting the underwriters to, to make some policy changes. And, and I think naturally, you know, you mentioned with face pricing, that could be uh, a result of that. You know, banks have all sorts of parameters for different industries, different borrower types where they assign some sort of score or metric. And um, as conditions change, you know, that could change and follow depending on what industry that the borrower was in, for example, and that could affect their pricing. So yes, it, it could definitely uh, impact that. All right, with that, we have one last question for the audience. Before that, I would like to remind everyone, there are QR codes on the sides where the snacks and foods are. If you'd like to 
follow up with any of the people on the panel, please feel free to scan the QR code. It'll take you to a Google form where you can put your contact information and the request that the topic you'd like to cover to reach out. And everyone will get it, or all the panelists will get that information within the next 24 hours. So with that last question from the audience for this panel. Thank you, uh, I'm Massey's crew. And I was wondering, what is like, the earliest stage that you start to see debt financing coming in the startups, whether it be ARR or EBITDA? Like at what point do you think, like, let's really start to explore this? Um, well, you know, I think it, it kind of depends, right? And it depends on where you're going to get the financing. Um, you know, for us at the bank, you know, we might put a debt facility on a seed round, right? But that seed round is probably going to be a 15 to $20 million seed round that we know the investors on it. And they're saying, hey, we really like this company, you know, take a run with us, right? Typically, it's A and, and beyond, um, but when we look at it, it's that total amount of equity because we're gonna lend some sort of percentage of that equity, right? So the bigger rounds tend to get more equity, right? There tends to be a little bit more to piggyback on the underwriting too. Later stage companies, there's a little bit more that we can underwrite too. There's revenue, there's contracts, there's other things. You know, when we're looking at those earlier stage, the C or even the A rounds, where there isn't that kind of metrics, then it's a little bit more art than it is science, right? So um, it could be early as a C, but it would have to be, as we say, right down the fairway for us to do something that early. I think one of the other things, you know, asking this question, when can a startup start looking at debt? It's sort of like, when can someone take out their first credit card? And the, I, think the, I think the answer is that there's all kinds of different credit facilities out there for every borrower. And if you're responsible and prudent, you can find something that fits. There's asset-based lending, there's inventory finance, there's PO finance. I think, I think really the, the thing to do is to look at the overall uh, business strategy or, or business model that you have and, and what are the tangible characteristics that, could, that, that, are, that are solid enough to have somebody lend against them. And you know this is this is kind of interesting because I think this is one of the one of the things that can get young entrepreneurs or early stage companies in trouble is they often don't understand the obligation of servicing those loans or debt, and so this is where there's you know maybe optimistic entrepreneurs that over leverage PO and suddenly they have debt spiral financing that just knocks them out of the box, and so um, so the, the 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 short answer there is. There's all kinds of lending available for your company. You can find good land lenders that'll work with you, and as long as you're transparent and honest with them um, and understand what you're getting into, you can manage it pretty prudently. Thank you. All right. And with that, last question for the for the panel: thirty seconds each person. One takeaway the audience should know, and how's the best for the best way for them to get in contact with you. Um, Takeaway for the audience is I'm available. I love talking to entrepreneurs and business owners because I feel like if I can't help you, maybe I know someone that can. Best way to reach me would be through those wonderful QR codes that you guys have set up, what organization that is. But I'm also on LinkedIn and pretty active there. And if you mentioned that you saw me here, I'll uh, connect with you there and we can do that as well. I think the one takeaway, there's a lot of doom and gloom because of interest rates, because of COVID and all of this. Obviously, you know, there's tough times that are ahead of us. 
but the business environment is still pretty good. Deals are getting done, investors are putting money to work, there's a lot of great lenders that have deep pockets that are ready to do deals. So let's go, let's do this. Stole my thunder, Connor. I was uh, gonna say, there's a ton of capital sources out there and you know, uh, hopefully we've provided a sense of that. So you know, be diligent and go out there and reach out to us. You can, you can reach out to me, I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, my email should be in the QR code somewhere, so happy to, happy to talk. All right, and also for everyone out there, you'll get a link in the next 24 hours that has access to a Google Drive that has every one of these people's one-pager, every one that has submitted a one-pager to me. You got one-pager for me. Yeah. <laughs> so, I'm a miss. Too much for one page right yeah. now. <laughs> it's a novel. All right, with that, I'd like to hand the mic off to our MC, Brian. All right, thank you, Sean. Let's hear it for our panel. Thank you for listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. To access our resources, visit us at the siliconvalleypodcast.com and follow our host on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Sean Flynn SV. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional.